0: Welcome to the Communication Design Podcast. I'm Ben Lorne, an assistant professor at Michigan State University in the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and American Cultures. Today, we're talking to Peter Merholtz about his new co-authored book with Kristen Skinner called Org Design for Design Orgs, Building and Managing In-House Design Teams, recently out on O'Reilly Media. So, Peter, I came across a slide deck you shared Uh, from a conference presentation you'd recently done. And in that slide deck, you had a quote that said, be wary of people espousing methodologies. Typically, they're crutches to free people from critical thinking. That quote spoke a lot to me because I'd been reading about Agile, and I felt that a lot of the people I was reading believed Agile could solve problems related to teams and teaming that it was almost some sort of a cure-all, and I found myself disagreeing with that. Your quote seemed to put into words my inner dialogue in that moment. So to start off today, I wonder if you could give us an example in your own work where you've resisted specific design methodologies and why.
1: The genesis of that was similar. It was less about Agile and more about the rise of Lean and Lean UX in much of its commentary and what i observed in its practice was intellectually lacking and the frustration that i had is or have is when people kind of hide behind methodologies as a way to not engage in critical thinking about how to actually solve a problem Uh, and it's not just lean and agile Uh, i feel the same about user-centered design right that's theoretically the world i come from but, you know, there are process and methodology wonks uh, just as strong in, in user experience and user-centered design as in any other practice. Uh, one of the tenets, one of the founding tenets of Adaptive Path, so I was one of the founders of a company called Adaptive Path, a user experience firm. And we were, we were always tightly associated with user-centered design, but we actually never followed a set process. We had what we called a, a methodological toolkit. Uh, and we were always looking to innovate. It It was never done, and I, I think what I learned is that problems are not one size fits all. And what you want to do is bring to bear the right tools to solve the problem, uh, and not just try to apply uh, a standard methodology, kind of regardless of what uh, what the nature of the problem is that you're you're tackling. Another another concern I have around process and kind of fidelity to process is that process is seen as a proxy for quality so that if something is delivered that is bad like like qualitatively bad uh, uh, everyone recognizes it is it is uh, not not a good not good work what can sometimes happen is people will say well we followed the process <laughs> um And as, as an excuse or, you know, an explanation, but it's really an excuse for kind of that outcome, like, well, you did, we did what we were supposed to do and this happened. And again, it's, it's this idea that people kind of check out when they get too process oriented and go through the motions of a methodology, as opposed to thinking critically about it every step of the way. I've noticed this when it comes to agile within agile development teams, where, um, there can be more focus on burn down rates and backlogs and user stories and epics and all of this process that's built up around agile than the actual work itself i call that cargo cult agile where where companies kind of practice what what they think is a set of practices that that mean agile without realizing that it's not the practices that lead to success. Uh, it's the people and their, their savvy that actually makes success happen. And simply following, you know, what you read in a book or, or were taught at a workshop at a conference doesn't drive success in and of itself.
0: That's great. So how do you think org design for design orgs demonstrates some of these principles in practice?
1: The Orc Design book uh, is explicitly non-process. That was a decision we made uh, at the outset just because there are so many books about design processes and methodologies that we didn't feel we needed to uh, contribute there. There wasn't going to be much that we could add to that conversation. So apart from a mention of the double diamond as a as a way of thinking about design design work and uh, a little conversation around planning as key to, to to design work, there's very little about process. And and I guess it fits with the theme of the book, which is a recognition that the organization that you build and that you shape has more to do with the outcomes that are produced than almost any other thing, whether it's process, uh, whether it's strategy, whether it's even the quality of or the, the talent of the individuals the talent of individuals can be enhanced or muted based on the organizational context that they're operating in. A strategy will be realized or um, curbed based on the organizational context it's realized in. And so the orientation was helping people think about their organization very explicitly. It's It's a subject that folks don't tend to dig into. It's kind of the air we breathe in companies that we're in. And I think a lot of folks don't recognize it is manipulable. Organizations are not handed down from on high and we just have to work within them. Organizations, through thoughtful engagement and intent, can be shaped to drive certain outcomes. We wrote the book in part as a reaction to people not recognizing that. People thinking so much of design is either about craft, the design work itself, or maybe kind of increasingly strategy um, uh, uh, design thinking, uh, you know, certain more uh, kind of higher order practices that I think uh, th- those folks are missing kind of the forest for the trees. And the forest is shaping and or- shaping a di- design organization has what will, will have a huge impact on the output of that design team um, and uh, needs to be considered as intentionally as any other designed uh, as anything else the design team is
0: producing. So that's really interesting. Were any of the conversations in that book then about culture?
1: So when we talk, of, we do talk about uh, culture. We actually focus more on the culture of the design team itself as opposed to the broader organization. That was another boundary that we had to set for ourselves. So we're not talking about um, how to be a design driven. Company, how to be a customer centered company. What we talk about is how to build the healthiest, most effective design organization. And definitely, as part of that, we address matters of culture because um, the, the culture that the design team embodies and um, uh, lives and breathes is also important for its output. Again, as much, if not more, than matters of process. Uh, which which are usually looked at as as uh, uh, what what drives output.
0: That's fascinating. So to follow up on that, in our field, of broadly conceived of communication design or technical communication, uh, there is a book that came out in 2015 by Clay Spinuzzi uh, called "All Edge uh, Inside the New Workplace Networks." and And one of the things that is talked about in that book is how Many teams need to move really quickly and are temporary and because they're so focused on solving problems. And as a result of that, they share in things like project management. Does org design for design org get into any similar or related ideas?
1: Core to the book is a philosophy that design organizations should be thought of at the organizational level of team, let me unpack that a bit. Typically, design, design organizations, the atom that is most considered is that of the designer, the individual. There's a number of reasons for it. In some ways, it's it's just easier. But I think, especially in Silicon Valley, what you have is a lot of product teams that have a single designer in them. There's this discussion of the design unicorn, uh, this, this person that can do visual design, interaction designs, and lightweight technology. And you have these individuals on product teams working with a product manager and a set of engineers. What I have experienced and what we were communicating very aggressively in the book is that design is a team sport and design is better practiced by multiple people collaborating because no one person will have the spread of skills, experience, time to, to tackle a meaningful design problem. And so we spend a lot of time talking about design teams, the structure of those teams, the nature of uh, a design team should have a single leader, uh, a single strong leader, a group of people around them, usually uh, four to seven people making up a design team with a range of kind of seniority levels and a and, uh, range of skills. Those teams, and I haven't read Clay's book, but I can I can make some guesses as to the kinds of things he's talking about. These design teams uh, operate not independently, but they are not embedded within the product or feature teams that they are working with. They work across a set of what I would call contiguous feature teams. We propose that you want to organize your design teams by uh, customer journey and customer experience. And typically, those customer experiences span the efforts of multiple product teams, and i think a failing in many organizations is that design gets embedded in those specific product teams and what happens is um, those teams solve problems in isolation of one another but these are these these products or features are part of a contiguous experience and when they get pulled together that experience uh, lacks coherence it falls apart as you the example we use in the book is of an e-commerce site and and you know when i worked a group on we had a Homepage team and a search team and a product page team and a checkout team. Right, They were four different teams, and if they were to operate in isolation, the customer moving through the site would have could have this very um, uh, confusing experience because it, it doesn't it, it hasn't been designed with a holistic sense of that customer's journey. And so, what we did in terms of the team structure is to make sure that the design team spanned all of these. Uh, features so that they could design that as a, as a kind of single, contiguous, coherent experience. So when we talk about teams, we talk about not just the design team itself and how it can do its best work, but then how those design teams hook into uh, these delivery teams uh, most appropriately.
0: Excellent. Thank you. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. We'll come back to the book in a second. Uh, this is a question for our listeners, maybe a little bit. So I'd like to know a little bit more about how you got into the field. I'm aware of the story of you coining the word blog, but I also wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you broke into the field of design.
1: So I got started in the field of design. I kind of fell into it. My undergrad degree is in anthropology. Uh, from UC Berkeley. And in my last year, I had a on-campus work-study job uh, as a research assistant for a professor in the School of Education. And it turned out he was very interested in multimedia in education. He'd had a background in technology. He'd actually worked at Apple, uh, Apple Computer, before coming back to academia. And so I started becoming familiar with authoring tools for multimedia this is in the early 90s so we're talking uh, hypercard and uh, director and uh, 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 using early photoshop and illustrator to create your graphic assets that would work in these authoring tools and as i was becoming familiar with multimedia authoring and which is essentially designing software (laughs) um i i i became familiar with um I, i my my professor had a book on his bookshelf Information Anxiety by Richard Saul Wurman, and I read it. The title captured my interest, and I took it down off the shelf and I and I inhaled it, and realized that other people thought about the world in a way like like me, uh, in terms of thinking about systems and structures and, and organization. I'd never had it kind of uh, captured so uh, well. Uh, when I when I left that job uh, when I graduated. My, my first real job out of school was for a CD-ROM publisher called Voyager. And one of their first titles, or the first title I worked on, was uh, a CD-ROM that was a collection of Donald Norman's first three books, uh, put on CD-ROM and then uh, augmented with audio and video of Don talking about the material in the book. And so as part of this I was QA on this uh, project as part of being QA. I ended up reading his three books and similar had a similar kind of like, wait a moment. There's, there's people who are thinking about things in a way that feels germane to me that, that, that aligns with how I think about the world. And so that is how I started to become a kind of cognizant of matters of design and user experience. Um, Also the Voyager company had super talented designers, uh, largely with print backgrounds. Uh, who were trying to embrace this new medium and figure out how to make the most of it. But I got exposed to formal design practice, right? These are people who went to Parsons or SVA, you know, leading, leading design schools. Uh, and I had the fortune of working with them. And so when I left that job, and I came back to San Francisco. I ended up working at a design firm, Studio Architect, which is Clement Mox company. And my marketable skill initially was as a web developer because I have no formal design background. Uh, but I, in 1996, I knew HTML and you could get a job if you knew HTML. Uh, but after a year, I transitioned into being an interaction designer. I, I took some evening classes in user-centered design and uh, shifted to become an interaction designer. So that's kind of how I, I fell into it without any formal kind of design background, uh, just kind of following my passion and recognizing that the way I approach problem solving was useful and uh, appropriate for the, the nature of these digital information architecture kind of interesting, complex software problems that were increasingly arising, right? With the first CD ROMs and then the explosion of the web, software was everywhere and, and it was very quickly very confusing. And so folks who could help organizations make sense of these experiences that they were delivering were seen as valuable. So that's that's how I that's a long answer, but how I, I became a, a designer without ever having <laughs> without ever having studied or practiced
0: design formally. That's a great story. Um, so in your answer, you brought up the book Information Anxiety. I'd like to know uh, what other work was sort of instrumental and inspiring to you when you were getting started or continues to inspire you today.
1: My first two inspirations uh, were Richard Saul Wurman, who wrote Information Anxiety, and uh, Donald Norman. Uh, specifically the design of everyday things. In an ongoing fashion, I continue to be inspired by Don. Uh, He continues to publish, um, but more importantly, he continues to be relevant. There's a lot of folks who emerged uh, from the kind of usability and HCI world in the early to mid-90s as the web was taking off, who... Have, are no longer relevant. They caught fire when people were looking for a hero, people looking for an expert. Um, but their their ongoing contribution remained kind of stale, and th- these folks had trouble advancing. I found with Don, he is always advancing. He is willing to question any uh, any anything he said in the past. He is not beholden to his own, <laughs> um, not beholden to his own previous thought leadership, as it were. Uh, if he has presented new information that causes him to think differently about it. So whether, you know, when he started, it was the design of everyday things. And it was this very, you know, cognitive science um, uh, approach to thinking about design. But then over time, he wrote a book, uh, Emotional Computing, I think it's called, which is basically about effective computing. And he recognized, you know what, it's not just about utility and usability. It's about how it makes you feel. And and it's not just about how it makes you feel. These things all need to be in balance, right? And he has continued to evolve his his thinking about uh, design as the field evolves and as the context evolves. He was uh, was an early advocate of ideas of service design and systems design uh, in the world that we're all working in and recognizing the importance of having a systems mindset in order to be a successful designer, even if all you're working on is an app.
0: So moving away from people, what about other places or other things that you might draw inspiration from?
1: We wrote this book because... As design leaders, myself and my co-author, Kristen Skinner, as design leaders, there was almost nowhere to turn when trying to figure out how to do our job. Uh, This became clearest to me when I was running Design at Groupon. And when I was there, I took a team of 25 designers and grew into 55 designers. And there was no playbook on how to do that. Um, there's, there's no, there's, you know, I, every other part of my design career, there was somewhere I could turn usually a book or a website or some resource I could turn to and get some sense of how to approach, uh, uh, addressing the challenge in front of me. That wasn't true with, um, running a sizable design team. My inspiration was solving that problem and then figuring out, kind of abstracting a little bit on the solution, because I recognize my solution is in a specific context. So can I pull that back a bit, abstract it a bit, generalize it a bit, and find ways that uh, it feels relevant to a broader audience? I mean, another inspiration, I guess a key inspiration for me has been what I'll call the design community, uh, for lack of a better word. I'm a, art uh, phrase, I'm a pretty active conference goer. Uh, events like the IA Summit, I've been going to for 16 17 years now um, adaptive path we hosted events and, and um, one event in particular called MX managing experience has been inspirational over the past 10 years learning from the learning from the speakers many of whom we interviewed for the book to, to fill out our, our understanding of, of design leadership you know I draw inspiration either from primarily from my own work, from being part of these kind of conferences and broader conversations. And then um, a lot of beer, a lot of, a lot of dinners uh, with other design leaders uh, who are tackling these challenges and asking them how they are doing it and providing my thoughts on it and, and having, that, having that just ongoing dialogue has been you know, how I've been able to formulate and shape my ideas
0: over time. Excellent. So I was going to save this question for later, but this seems like a perfect spot for it. Give me the name of a person that people don't typically hear about, but you think they should.
1: One of them, people are going to hear about her a whole lot more now, but my co-author, Kristen Skinner, uh, was someone no one heard about really before Uh, we wrote the book. Uh, She came to Adaptive Path when I was still there from having worked at Microsoft. So she was very familiar with what it meant. And and her background, her orientation is um, program management. I think she did practice design in an earlier part of her career, but she, she shifted into a more program manager role, kind of design operations role. And she was doing that at Microsoft and so understood what it took to wrangle, you know, design resources in a, you know, fairly sizable enterprise. Then she joined Adaptive Path and very quickly became our, you know, lead program manager and and helped institute kind of program management practice for our, you know, boutique-ish, we had 35 to 40 people design firm. Uh, when Adaptive Path was acquired by Capital One, she pretty quickly shifted into a role that spans the entire design organization at Capital One, which numbers in the the hundreds. Um, because uh, the work she was doing was not it was it's a role that they didn't have at Capital One. They did not have a program management role. You mentioned earlier when talking about teams, uh, we talked a little bit about project management, and uh, a lot of teams, a lot of organizations as they grow. Uh, particularly design organizations as they grow um, don't recognize the value of project or program management of of operations and of of having someone who's paying solely paying attention to to those matters you know as capital One's design team is huge um, there were a lot of inefficiencies, a lot, a lot of lack of coordination, lack of alignment that you could remedy with strong program management. So she's quickly shifted into, into being the director, I think, of program management and, and a, a sizable team that, that in turn works across the
0: entire design organization my next question for you is during this interview you've talked a little bit about your experiences at adaptive path you've also talked a little bit about your experiences with groupon and i wonder if you reflect on these experiences in org design for design orgs
1: the heart of the org design book uh comes from mine and kristen's direct experiences chapter four which is called the centralized partnership um, is a presentation of a new way of, of thinking about how to organize a design team that isn't simply totally centralized nor totally decentralized and embedded but this kind of hybrid model that I was explaining earlier in terms of design teams that um, are teams in and of themselves but are hooked into a set of contiguous product teams to to deliver on a on a coherent experience um, that that came about through my own efforts at uh, specifically Groupon and trying to figure out how to structure my team to be most effective. Um, However, uh, in conversations with other design leaders, uh, in this case, uh, there was a woman, Melissa Tarquini. She um, runs design at uh, Scripps Media, uh, the digital properties of Scripps Media. I'd seen her present at a conference where she talked about how she came up independently of me a model that was is almost identical to what I had come up with and had been speaking about in terms of this this hybrid centralized decentralized organization. So she and I, uh, you know, t- talked quite a bit about it. I got some insights that I hadn't yet developed uh, uh, around it, um, just based on um, she'd been in companies that were clearly uh, more. Financially mature, (laughs) I would argue, than say Groupon was. And so she, one of the, one of the implications she discusses when she talks about it was around, um, headcount and what, whether or not your CFO likes one model over another, which is just not a perspective I, I had beforehand, but which I then appreciated and, and was rolled into the book chapter what is it chapter seven is one of my favorites uh it's all about levels which is one of these subjects professional development and how a how a designer progresses in their career and it's not a subject that you know would typically consider exciting um but it's it is so important and necessary every job i have had since leaving adaptive path i have had to develop a levels framework for my team um because it it didn't exist the standard levels frameworks that corporations use that you know are supposed to apply broadly across um, all employees um, rarely are appropriate or at least you know, lack a degree of specificity necessary for helping designers understand how they can best grow. And so this is one of those experiences where having done it two or three times, I'm like, wait a moment. If I keep having to do it, I'm guessing other people keep having to do it one of the things we can do in this book is and what we did is develop and present a somewhat generic levels framework for how a designer progresses from being right out of school to being a design executive and what are the kind of steps and stages along the way and it's one of the things that when i have taught workshops on this gets the most positive feedback because i think it's a challenge that everyone faces who is leading design and leading designers um and again it's one of those that there's not there's not resources out there, so everyone has to make that make it up on their own. Does um, you know? I'm, I'm sure many of them are doing a pretty good job of it, but by by providing this this framework and putting it out there, it's essentially a scaffold that allows people to to get to a better place much faster. And so you know that emerged both through my own experience and then you know. Um, beer conversations and interviews, the interviews that we conducted with folks around this challenge and realizing that this is something that that every company uh, and every, all design leaders at some point need to tackle. So that's kind of how the I- ideas in the book emerged through uh, conversation uh, within the community.
0: So I want to take a bit of a right turn again. Um, when I was getting my PhD, I had a great teacher by the name of Kelly Cargill Cook, who uh, taught me the importance of failure stories, especially when we're doing research, and it's a lesson that I keep with me uh, to this day: of the importance of failing and learning from failing, and and making that productive. So I wonder if you could tell us about some of your failure stories that you find particularly instructive.
1: The challenge I have is trying to to narrow down the failure stories to a. Uh... A single, a single good one. Uh, You know, my, my, my biggest success is, is in some ways my biggest failure, which would be the work with Adaptive Path. By many, if not most accounts, a, a a successful organization, um, uh, and helped uh, establish the field of user experience, um, a, a lot of practices and methodologies that people, people use. Generally, a huge impact within, uh, kind of digital product design. But, um you know we we failed uh we failed particularly in that we uh, I, a phrase that i've heard more 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 recently uh, but would have applied then is we we got out over our skis um we were feeling pretty full of ourselves in the 2009 and 10 time frame and grew the company too big too soon uh established offices in austin and amsterdam and it wasn't foolhardy we we had signals that suggested this was this was viable but we grew too big. We made we had too many uh, full time hiring commitments. Um, uh, we instead of instead of using contractors to um, uh, allow for a uh, expandable and collapsible uh, design team because in the world of consulting you you've got you know uh, it's it's a bit feast or famine. Uh, we we were like you know what feasting is the new normal and so let's hire all these people and then when famine came uh, we were out of whack and problems arose. <laughs> we missed the payroll, layoffs, et cetera. Now the company made it through that, but was never quite the same after that point, you know, and I learned a ton. I learned a ton, uh, uh about myself. I am not equipped to be a CEO. Uh, there's a, there's a quality, uh, called equanimity, uh, that CEOs need to have to see themselves through thick and thin. And I, uh, I, I would score myself as relatively low on the equanimity scale. Um, the stress of the challenges really, really got to me. And that was, I think, important for me to recognize kind of the nature of the role that I am best suited for. You know, I learned I learned about business and how, how you know, more about just what it means to try to run a business and and what are the knobs and levers that you have as an entrepreneur in Running a business appropriately, uh, that was important. You know, I, I think learning the importance of relationships, you know, however painful it was going through it. I still have primarily um, great relationships with almost everyone I worked with um, and um, kind of related to that a recognition that business shouldn't trump um, personal and personal life, personal experience, personal relationships. And so, you know, my, my, I guess my, my failure and success story has less to do with the book or, or, or even by design practice or, or how I run teams and more for me. And I guess this is true of everyone's own failure stories, right? Well, how I was able to reflect on, on the impact on me and what it was I valued and, and what it was
0: uh, I wanted to do. So would you repeat that same answer or a similar answer if I asked you what do you feel is your greatest success?
1: Well, I mean the the greatest success is is has to be adaptive path at this point. I I hope I I realize the success as great if not greater, you know, in in my future. I I don't want to be someone who gets nostalgic <laughs> or 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 only looks back. Um but, at this point in my career, if I'm going to be honest and and clear-eyed, obviously it's adaptive path. Uh, I, I, people still talk about it. you know the company technically doesn't ex- hasn't really existed for over two years since it was acquired by Capital One, they still have a group within Capital One called Adaptive Path, but that's just the name of a department. That group is doing things that so Adaptive Path still has some of a public presence, whether it's adaptivepath.org, um, the events that it hosts. So, so there's, there's, there's still some legacy there that's uh, affirming, gives me warm fuzzies when I think about it. And, and just clearly, generally, the impact that we were able to have on um, leveling up the field of design strategy, design practice, um, helping companies become more uh, cognizant of what it means to, to embrace design. Um, that, that would be my, Uh, at this stage, my my greatest success. I do look forward to, you know, writing the book is is an opportunity for me to start carving a path for new successes. I hope in two, three, five years, uh, when asked that question, to take nothing away from adaptive path, but I I hope that I can uh, have a new greatest success that has arisen since that
0: point. I hope so, too. So I've asked you this question already, but I'm going to ask you it one more time. Um, since Adaptive Path as your biggest failure and your biggest success that you're pointing to, do you feel that your experiences there at all come out in the book, or Design for Design Orgs?
1: Much of what I know, still the majority of what I know about leading design as a as a practice and a craft, leading design as a um, as a service, as an initiative, leading designers. So kind of as as a manager, and even some of what I understand about operating design uh, design operations started and and was worked through at Adaptive Path. One of the things that uh, I think we we make explicit in the book is. Something that I've been part of since leaving Adaptive Path is trying to figure out how do you how do you bring the magic of a strong successful design firm when it's firing on all cylinders in house how do you bring that magic inside an organization where design is only one function of many right it's easy for a design firm to deliver great design because that's all it thinks about all day long it's an organism whose sole purpose is amazing design output and the challenge is how do you, you know, when you're when you're inside a, an, an enterprise, you know, there's a lot of other concerns. So so what can we learn from organizations such as design firms in terms of how they work and how they attain quality that is uh, applicable when you bring it in house? There's um, some cautionary tales. Uh, what you don't want to do is basically take an external design agency and plop it in inside an enterprise and have it operate the same. That ends up not working. Uh, the design agency is disempowered. Impact is, is mitigated. Um, too often I've seen this happen where people coming from design firms leading internal design teams are so uh, afraid of quality being compromised that they won't let designs leave their group. Uh, Until, you know, until it has attained a certain level of of, uh, kind of internally determined quality. So there's all these checkpoints and and bottlenecks um, in in an effort to to desperately ensure quality. And what happens in those organizations is that design becomes seen as a thing to route around. It becomes seen as a problem and um, product teams just uh, decide to ignore uh, the design team and, and deal with it directly. On the flip side, though, the other challenge when design comes in-house is that it's seen uh, it, it starts to accommodate to the ways and means already existing in the organization. And you know, we talked about agile and lean before, and so you get agile design and lean design. Uh, where you try to to figure out how can design be done in one or two week-long sprints and with a minimum of research and strategy because the point is to get something out in front of – an MVP out in front of people as soon as possible and iterate and learn from there. But I think that gives design short shrift because that is not – what, what works well for engineering is not necessarily what works well for design. And too often design try, uh, when it comes in-house tries to operate as if it was an engineering practice and it's a different kind of practice. And so um, this is a very long answer but um, you know the idea is how do we take what made it what made design work well at adaptive path and, and well, at least for me, like that's been my part of my mission, how do I take what made design work well at an after path and bring in in-house? So that's why we have this teams orientation. No design firm ever has designers work in isolation. Uh, you always have design in teams because teams of designers do better work. Now, it doesn't have to be 12 designers, right? It can be two designers, five designers, maybe six or seven, more than that. It starts getting overwhelming. But But designers work better in teams, just like engineers work better in teams. So how do you bring that team mentality? How do you establish and uphold standards of quality without getting so precious that nothing ever gets launched. One of the things we, we had to learn at Adaptive Path is how you help people grow in an organization that isn't very big. And most design teams within enterprises aren't very big. And so a lot of what I know about professional development and designer growth uh, comes from my work at Adaptive Path and being creative in terms of recognizing there's multiple ways that designers want to grow. They don't just want to climb a ladder and manage people and then manage managers. So so that's what it's been about for me is take figuring out what are those things that that worked with an organization whose sole purpose was good design and how do you splice that into the DNA of an organization
0: that has a lot of other concerns. Peter, what do you wish that you had more time to learn? I'm always interested in learning, but I don't have a
1: thing in particular that I'm trying to go kind of deep on or that I wish I could, I wish I could build upon, Um, you know, part, part of me is thinking, getting getting more up to speed on some of these technologies. I now step into rooms and people start talking about Node and React and Angular as if I should know what they're talking about. And I, figured, I feel like maybe I should learn more about that, like some of the these core technologies that are making kind of web and mobile go. Um, but then I, I kind of appreciate being the unfrozen caveman design leader who's like, I don't know how you make your technology go. And that's not because re- it's not really my interest. To the degree to which it, it enables or inhibits the, the, the designs and the experiences I and my team want to deliver, I am interested, but I, I, I appreciate not getting too wrapped up in the ins and outs of technologies because I find that can be quite limiting. You you apply that as a constraint almost immediately. Kind of related to that, where where I do think I probably more spending uh, a bit more time and effort uh, cracking is um, better ways at conducting meaningful, authentic, insightful user research that... Can operationalize appropriately. I think there's still some challenges in figuring out how to how to take the uh, appropriate time and engage with users and customers to understand who they are, behaviors, contexts, needs, and then figuring out how to interpret and translate that so that an organization can actually act on it. There's often a a pretty big break between one and the other that uh, would be worth figuring out how to, how, to, how to cross that chasm
0: more gracefully. I think we can all relate to that moment where we wish uh, we had a better understanding of the tool that we were using or a tool that people were talking about. Absolutely. So three more questions remaining. The first is, what are the main takeaways for academics in org design for design orgs?
1: No academics. No, this is not, that's actually not true. I was about to say no academics were consulted in the creation of the book. Uh, that's not totally true. I did talk to a, a business school professor at UC Berkeley, Sarah Beckman, who's someone that I've known for 13, 14 years. She, she was an advisor to some work that adaptive path did early on around, uh, applying ROI thinking to design and user experience. And, and so she's someone I, I often go back to, but, um, No, no organizational designers uh, from an academic perspective, organizational psychologists, anyone with a formal kind of background in organization design was consulted in making the book. And so um, I don't know. I I would be curious what insights feel genuine and maybe even from a uh, ideally revelatory, right, from coming from someone such as myself who has no formal background or, or practice in organizational design and psychology. You know, are there things in there that. Are contrary to you know maybe kind of common belief and common practice, but but might be truly insightful, right? And, and just that way of kind of thinking deeply about practice and, and, and coming up with, with with what I hope are interesting ideas. Um, on the flip side, I would also love to have you know my bullshit called and be like, oh my god, you. You missed a whole thing or this is totally wrong for all of these reasons. And your your frame is inappropriate or whatever. If we were to write a second edition, I would want to engage more uh, explicitly, I think, with organizational design and organizational psychology. Uh, That wasn't the point of this first book. Uh, It really was to just kind of get out a lot of ideas that were rattling around in my head and and put them out there to kind of seed the conversation. Uh, So, you know, I, I don't I honestly don't know. Uh, what, what academics will get out of it beyond a better appreciation for the world that their students are going to be put into maybe a recognition of things like career paths and and roles one of the challenges that that students have when when leaving school and and joining the workforce is understanding how what it means to be a professional and so kind of There might be there might be things that academics can take away that's less about their own practice and more about their their students and and, and helping those students um, make better choices about their initial professional decisions.
0: Can you give an example of what you mean by initial professional decisions? The teacher in me is very curious.
1: I think a lot of uh, students don't know just uh, don't don't appreciate the range of organizational contexts and cultures they can find themselves in, um, and specifically how toxic uh, many are. And so, you know, I think there's uh, chapter three is the twelve qualities of effective design organizations, and it's meant to act as a an assessment tool, almost as like a maturity tool uh, for design organizations. But I think it could also lead to a set of things, questions that someone starting to look for work could ask of their p- prospective employers to see how well they do uh, in terms of how effective they are and helping 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 students understand that they, Uh, They have a choice in terms of where they work and that their choice should be driven not just by what's sexy and cool, um, not by, you know, who offered them the best swag um, or whatever. But like that their their professional happiness is going to be bound up in the ways and means of the organizations that they join and uh, better understand those those mechanics of the organizations that they're joining.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. That is excellent advice. Thank you. So back to main takeaways. What do you think the main takeaways are in org design for practitioner audiences and communication design? Uh,
1: The first is a
0: recognition that orgs are there to be shaped
1: uh, and that we we should not receive organizations as they have been handed to us and assume that is how they ought to operate. I think too often. Um, when when companies um, establish themselves and grow, they simply adopt standard organizational practices, whether or not they are appropriate uh, for the nature of their offering, their delivery, what it is they're trying to put out in the world. And so, you know, the, the book, if nothing else, uh, helps people recognize the power of intentionality when thinking about organizational choices. Another key takeaway is that we have a we have a passage called our humanistic agenda um and it is really kind of true of the whole book and it is a it is a recognition that for design to thrive in organizations um, those design teams and the organizations that are embracing those design teams need to approach management to use it in a very generic kind of um, MBA way, need to approach management from a standpoint of humanism. So not uh, reductionism, not analysis, not spreadsheets, not uh, org charts, not bureaucracy, but instead an appreciation of the individuals and the pe- the people who are who make up the organization and their needs, wants, desires. In order for design to thrive and be its most effective. The people practicing design need to be able to bring their whole selves to their work. Um, and that is much of the, that is, that is one of the key themes of the entire book is kind of fighting these mechanistic bureaucratic practices that are too common in organizational, um, development and, 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 uh, uh, HR practices. And instead We're trying to provide a counterweight that swings things towards a much more strongly humanistic mindset, um, because we feel that that is what will lead to greater engagement, better output, just happier, you know, happier staff means better work kind of thinking. I guess the third kind of related to that, uh, and it's part of the coda of the book, um, so it's an explicit takeaway, like it's literally at the end as, (laughs) as it's meant to be an explicit takeaway is this idea that uh, we call keep design weird. And I referred to it a little bit earlier when I said that when design comes in-house, it often finds itself accommodating to existing practices, particularly around engineering. And if design does that, it will be blunted. The value that design brings in organizations is that it is a different way of thinking and and tackling problems than likely exists already. Um, At least thinking about from kind of uh, tech, Silicon Valley kind of tech mindset, but, it, but it's true of pretty traditional businesses as well. Business for the last, you know, 120 years since the rise of Taylorism has been very re- reductionist, very mechanistic, uh, very analytical, and uh, a lot of success was realized. Um, but, but, you know, I think we've seen kind of the, the that success kind of play itself out. There's decreasing uh, returns on that investment. And the value that design brings is it is a stereotypically right-brained, creative, generative, synthetic practice that, and that's its value is, is bringing this different mindset, um, into organizations. And if designers and design teams try to accommodate in 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 their desire to be seen as a good team player and a good corporate citizen, they will mute and mitigate that thing that actually makes them valuable. Um, this isn't to say to be disrespectful or to be overbearing or to, to, to be um, ignorant uh, and, and for design just to be kind of insane and crazy, but you want design to, you want your design team and your designers, your design practice to be able to to, to tap into that weirdness because that is actually going to be what how they deliver value uh, within these organizations.
0: That's such a great answer, and I think it's so important. I think I see that in my own work all the time. I see that in the work of communication design as a field. And I'm super excited about your book. I think it's going to be a great read for people in the Communication Design Quarterly audience and and anybody else that's listening to this podcast. So let me move on to my last question. Um, And this one is simply tell us about what your next project is going to be and or tell us where you think the field of design needs to grow
1: design leadership needs to grow to uh better embrace the reality of the services world that we live in right so so you know the the new economy uh is largely one of services not products right we've made this shift over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st century and almost anybody working on the internet is working in a services is actually working in a services context, whether or not they are seen as part of a product team a product design team, those types of things. Um, the implications of that are still being, uh, understood and, and figured out. Um, but I think, uh, one of the, one of the key implications of that is that, um, Design is actually bigger, hairier, and more complex than we even recognized it to be. Um, because when you're talking about the delivery of a service and the coordination of online and offline interactions between a customer and a business, um, that's a lot. If you want that uh, service experience to feel coherent, right? That's that's a marshaling of, of of design talent uh, throughout a customer's journey. Kind of making sure that everything that 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 customer is engaging with feels like it's of a piece. And we're not there yet. You know, most of the companies I talk to still distinguish between product and marketing design, which strikes me as a retrograde artifact of 20th century thinking when, you know, uh, marketing maybe uh, developed product requirements and then threw them over to the fence at a at the manufacturer you know the product and manufacturing people who built it and then they threw that back over to the marketing people to put it in a box and put it on a shelf and otherwise there was very little interaction and and how things something was marketed and communicated and how something was built were were just two totally different work streams that doesn't play anymore in a digital always on connected world your your quote unquote marketing and quote unquote product experiences are just all part of the same customer journey and I, I think the you know savvier design organizations are recognizing that and are and are figuring out how to weave quote-unquote marketing and quote-unquote product experiences together because they are so similar and not just um, design but, but other other functions as well are, are starting to recognize that in a world of services uh, what matters more than anything is the relationship that a company has with its customer and if that is true, then you need to shift how your company operates to center around that customer relationship, uh, and and we're still feeling our way toward that and those implications. And so, I think the challenge for design leadership. I think the opportunity for design leadership is to lead the way. Design teams tend to be smaller than other parts of the organization, so they can be nimbler. They can they can they can sense and react to this um, shift uh, more readily. Also, because they're more empathetic. Uh, I, 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 design organizations tend to feel this shift before other parts of the organization. And then the challenge will be figuring out how to how to help operationalize this customer centricity, not just within design, but, but throughout the organizations that they work with uh, in order for this to, to actually take hold.
0: Where do you see the role of communication designers in this kind of organization that you're describing?
1: What we propose in the book is that um, you, you simply have uh, one design team, one design organization that's made up, made up of a set of design teams. And those design teams have the, a breadth of skills um, uh, within them that includes not just product design skills around interaction design, Um, information architecture or prototyping, but also communication design skills around visual design and copywriting or content strategy. That that is what makes those design teams complete, is that they uh, contain all of that understanding, uh, all of those skills within a single team so that they can so that they can deliver across all of those, all of the things that are necessary in in the delivery of a service, um, whether it's at a quote unquote marketing part of the customer's journey or a product part of the customer's journey. Again, those distinctions are becoming fuzzier. What I see for communication designers is that they are part of these design teams that are doing Communication design, product design, user research, prototyping, and they're they're just they're in that mix. They're solving those problems, and there are certain areas where their deeper skill comes to the fore: writing copy, figuring out how content can help weave someone through the experience, using visual design to explain and communicate. But uh, it's it's all part of a set of effort um, that that is coordinated to, to, to deliver the service. And so instead of seeing a communication design team as a separate function from a product design team, the book, in the book, we're very explicit about the integration of all those roles, um, because what all everybody is trying to do is, is design for a better service experience. Um, And that's kind of the, that is the organizing principle. That is the higher order that everyone's working toward. Um, And so these folks just all come together in service of that. Kind of greater cause.
0: This ends our interview with Peter Merholtz. I want to thank him for his time today. I found the interview particularly interesting and I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Make sure that you check out his new book co-authored with Kristen Skinner called Org Design for Design Orgs, published by O'Reilly Media. Once again, I'm Ben Lauren, your host of the Communication Design podcast series, and thank you for listening.